out there mushing crackets. I almost feel sorry for Hey there, and welcome to the Kraken Busters. A walk through the history of the U.S. sea monster conflict of the 1940s and 1950s. This is Episode 6, Operation Typhoon, 1947. I'm Keith Pilly. Uh, quickly here up front, welcome new listeners. It, uh, it looks like there are a lot of you, and that is pretty rad. Uh, glad to have you. Usually I do some kind of listener response up front here. Um, and there's actually there's a lot of questions that I would like to get to, but as you can see, if you look at the runtime, um, there's a lot of material to cover today, and this is going to be a long episode no matter what. So I'm just going to slide past the usual listener response and get right into it. Okay, so last week things really began to fall apart in the Pacific. A civilian evacuation of Hawaii was ordered, and fleet headquarters was moved back to the mainland. And the ships doing all the moving involved with this were routinely savaged by sea monsters, which absolutely killed morale back home. Also, Douglas MacArthur and his occupation forces in Japan found themselves increasingly unsupported by the Navy and squeezed out by the Soviets. Facing all of this, President Truman ordered the Navy's Pacific commanders back to Washington to talk about options. This week... At that Washington conference, one of America's self-styled naval heroes tries to step up to the plate to set things right. The direction of the discussion in Washington was essentially one-sided. Although many luminaries, including Spruance, Nimitz, and Oberst, were key participants, the conversation was quickly dominated by another naval figure, Fleet Admiral William F. Halsey, easily the most famous American sea warrior of the 1940s, and a man known and revered for his pugnacity. Halsey's argument was simple. The fleet needed to draw the creatures out and engage them in a decisive battle. That was it. End of story. They were mysterious, yes, but the U.S. Navy was the mightiest seagoing force in world history. All that was required, he said, was to use that fleet properly in a combined manner against them. I should briefly say, by the way, that the discussion was one-sided in another sense, too, in that it was utterly dominated by the Navy, and the entire thing was treated as a Navy problem. And believe me, the other service branches would have some things to say about that, but that's, that's for later. Anyway... Nimitz and Oberst were receptive to Halsey's argument, as was Secretary of the Navy James Forrestal, who was essentially serving as President Truman's proxy at these meetings. But there was some dissent. Spruance and Trumbull asked how Halsey's proposal was any different from Mark Mitcher's failed attempt um, previously in 1946. Halsey's response was spirited, if blustery. Mitcher had started out on a sound footing, but he had failed because of bad tactics, according to Halsey. He had rushed headlong into an engagement without understanding how to defeat the creatures. That, Halsey argued, would not happen now that everyone had Mark Mitcher's bad example to learn from. And Mitcher had launched a full airstrike as soon as he'd sighted the enemy without waiting for conditions that gave him a more decided advantage. A Halsey attack, the Admiral argued, would be deliberate and on his terms. And finally, Halsey argued, 
Mitchell had allowed his preference for air operations to unduly sway his attack plan. He was an air admiral who saw everything in terms of naval aviation. Halsey, on the other hand, argued that he understood combined naval arms and that a Halsey attack would use both air and surface elements of the fleet for a more balanced approach. Now, there was skepticism in response to Halsey's bluster. Although Spruance knew him well and considered him a personal friend, the two admirals had displayed drastically different approaches to naval warfare during the war. Spruance had always emphasized thorough planning and estimation of situations. He was willing to take risks, but only after careful calculation. Halsey, on the other hand, above all prized aggression and spirit. Sailors tended to love sailing under Halsey because he made them feel like they were part of a great crusade. But the Admiral's impulsiveness had gotten the better of him frequently, often nearly leading to disaster. The best example of this had been the Battle of Leyte Gulf in 1944, when Halsey had fallen for a Japanese feint maneuver that dangled some useless aircraft carriers as bait and caused him to leave a vital strategic strait unguarded, actually imperiling the American invasion of the Philippines. The full story of the Battle of Leyte Gulf is a long, complicated, and frankly kind of stupid one, um, well worth looking into just for uh, as a gateway into human folly. Only a combination of luck, poor Japanese decision-making, and gutsy last-ditch fighting by American ships who thought they were serving in the rear area prevented Halsey's mistake from leading to total catastrophe. In terms of pure rank, uh, Halsey technically outranked Spruance at the Washington Conference. Halsey, like Nimitz, had been awarded a fifth star at the end of the war, in his case almost purely because of his high public profile. He, uh, you know, by the end of Leyte Gulf, he was kind of the military equivalent of too big to fail. However, Halsey had spent much of 1946 on the Navy's General Advisory Board, essentially a make-work job for supernumerary admirals, while Spruance, though only a four-star admiral, had assumed command of the Pacific Fleet. Here in Washington, Halsey, the master blusterer, was arguing that he was the man to conduct a Spruance-style planned campaign. It, it wasn't believable. There was no reason to think the man would abruptly change his entire leadership personality for this operation. Moreover, there was no concrete reason to believe that his approach would be materially different from what Mitcher's had been, despite all of his forceful assurances. Mitcher had set out intending to conduct a combined arms battle, and events had gotten away from him. Nothing but Halsey's word indicated against this happening again. But, Forrestal and Nimitz were receptive to the forceful talk coming from Halsey. Something had to be done. The public was just not going to stand for, well, our evacuation convoys are being protected a little bit better as a success story. Truman's instructions to Forrestal had been firm. If a plan for a decisive battle can be forged at this conference, go for it. So Halsey's view carried the day. After a week of debate and refinement, Forrestal reported a recommendation from the board to the president that Halsey be given command of the Third Fleet, the striking arm of the Pacific Fleet, with orders to find and engage the creatures. Spruance and his staff were to plan the operation, incorporating information from the Trumbull Group and Oberst's ONI team to maximize Halsey's chance for success. 
Uh, with these two special groups, by the way, by this point, the central Navy bureaucracy had acknowledged the existence of the parallel groups, and while not combining them, had at least physically located both of them within the SYNCPAC headquarters complex in San Diego, so that Oberst's ONI team could provide direct advice to Spruance alongside the Trumbull group. You know. Anyway, as far as the uh, conference and its resulting plan, Except for Forrestal and William Halsey, nobody was really thrilled with the outcome, but everybody accepted it, and planning proceeded. Now, an observation from Oberst's ONI team provided the core of the plan. Dr. K. Hendry's analysis of creature attack patterns had indicated that of all known ship types, the most reliably attacked were fishing vessels that worked regular, predictable areas. So the SYNCPAC staff plan hoped to use this behavior to control the time and place of the engagement. The largest extant collection of fishing vessels away from the American mainland, because for obvious reasons nobody wanted this confrontation to happen anywhere near the U.S. mainland, was centered around Nomea in, in the southwest Pacific. That fleet had been essentially beached, but the SYNCPAC Halsey plan called for it to set back out on daily fishing runs once the third fleet was en route from Pearl Harbor. The regularity of the fishing activity would act as bait, it was hoped, and lure the creatures to a predictable place where they could be destroyed by Halsey's converging forces. Halsey, when asked, loved the idea. His argument all along had been that picking the time and manner of the confrontation was how he was going to succeed. The plan, named Operation Typhoon by SYNCPAC staff, was approved in sequence by Spruance and Nimitz and put into place almost immediately. Fishing activity would begin off Noumea in late January, with Halsey's third fleet sortieing from Pearl Harbor on February 1st. Operation Typhoon kicked off according to plan. Under direct, arguably illegal, pressure from the American occupying military presence at Noumea, Small boats in the Southwest Pacific were quote-unquote encouraged to resume the fishing sallies that they had ceased earlier under creature threat. Losses to this fishing flotilla started out low and climbed sharply as they continued their regular patterns. This news was radioed enthusiastically back to Pearl Harbor as confirmation that the plan was working. On February 1st, the 3rd Fleet set out for the Noumea area, a departure in force not seen since the last year of the war. Halsey and his staff occupied the flag quarters of the battleship Missouri. Among this staff was Rich Trumbull, present to represent the Anti-Creature Task Group and to offer advice for the confrontation. Trumbull's journal makes it clear that he had very low hopes for his advice being taken. Quote, 2-1-1947 USS Missouri. Set out on Halsey's Grand Crusade today. Tried to follow the sortie from flag plot, and it took my breath away how many ships were taking. Took the better part of the day to get everyone out of the harbor, and then the rest of the daylight to get the ships into formation for the voyage. We only just now got up to cruising speed. I wish I could be more hopeful about this. We should be probing now, learning what works and what doesn't. It's too early to make the big play. When you make the big play and it doesn't work, you look hopeless. And we don't know enough to know for sure that the big play will work. The best I can do is to try to keep Halsey from always putting carts out in front of horses if we make contact. 
He got all grave and hand on the Bible serious when Spruance asked him to promise to listen to me and the staff when we actually get into action. I didn't buy it then. I don't buy it now. He barely said a word to me all day in flag plot, and I can't say that that seems like a good omen. End quote. The force setting out from Pearl Harbor was massive to the point of being hard to comprehend. There had been a bit of further reorganization since Mitcher's expedition. The fleet's primary striking arm lay in its 21 aircraft carriers of varying size, each of which carried um, usually three squadrons of strike aircraft and a squadron of fighter planes. The air arm was far from the only weapon. The fleet also possessed a staggering capacity for traditional naval surface warfare. Fourteen fast battleships, each with nine long guns capable of firing 16-inch shells at distances so far that to aim them, you had to do calculations that required a correction for the curvature of the Earth. There were over 35 cruisers armed with smaller but still potent naval cannons and an enormous flotilla of destroyers armed with smaller deck guns, depth charges, and torpedoes. All of these ships were fully manned by experienced, battle-hardened officers and men who had served in combat in the Pacific against the Imperial Japanese Navy. Although some post-war demobilization had occurred, it had so far mostly consisted of retiring older, obsolescent ships that had been kept in service because of wartime exigencies. The cutting-edge striking power of the Third Fleet hadn't been affected. Some losses had been sustained in previous actions against the sea creatures, but they were at a level that would have been considered negligible in fleet combat during the war. Admiral William Halsey left Pearl Harbor in command of a fleet which could reasonably be expected to annihilate any other naval force that existed then on the face of the planet. On the way, Halsey and his staff reviewed and refined their battle plan, updating it as radio reports from the bait fishing fleet in Numea trickled in. Several fishing boats were being lost per day. Survivors reported seeing both El Pulpo and Blackjack Kraken, but surprisingly low numbers of lesser sea creatures. Halsey's staff adjusted plans accordingly. They believed that in situations where larger primary creatures were the main threat, torpedo planes should lead the air attack on the theory that they delivered more targeted destruction. The pilots in the torpedo squadrons were informed of the new approach. The reactions of the individual pilots are, uh, they're lost to history. As the task force closed on Numea, air search coverage was stepped up. Throughout the fleet, a feeling of impending battle permeated everywhere. The return to normalcy that everyone had craved in their bones at the close of the war with Japan had been stolen from them. Here, the feeling went, was the chance to steal it back. Something close to electricity crackled between the ships as crews worked feverishly to prepare planes, guns, bombs, and torpedoes for battle as they waited for word of a sea monster sighting. And then the word came. Scout bombers flying 180 miles southwest of the fleet spotted a pair of fishing vessels in the open ocean 130 miles out from Numea, under attack by an enormous group of lesser octopi and krakens. When the radio report was delivered to Halsey, the aging warrior slammed a fist into his palm and grinned at his staff, quote, Now we're going to fry those sons of bitches to a crisp. Round of seafood on the house, end quote. The staff cheered. 
Rich Trumbull tried to point out that sighting lesser creatures didn't guarantee an encounter with the primaries, but Halsey and Rear Admiral Robert Carney, his chief of staff, had no time for him. Trumbull's testimony during the post-operation debriefing slash court of inquiry is worth reading. Um, I'm going to quote it at length here. Note that when I say JAG, that's an acronym for Judge Advocate General, and it is a naval legal official that's conducting the investigation here. So, quote, JAG. And what happened after the sighting off Noumea? Trumbull. Admiral Halsey started giving preparatory orders to position the fleet to execute the main typhoon attack plan. JAG. Did these orders involve specific disposition of the fleet? Trumbull. They did. The attack plan called for the fleet to basically split into an air attack element and a surface attack element, and the Admiral started giving these orders as soon as the sighting came in. JAG. Did you agree with these actions? Trumbull. I did not. JAG. And why not? Trumbull. Because splitting the fleet committed us to action. With that many ships, changing their disposition took hours. Starting the attack now meant that we were committed, or at least that we'd be busy maneuvering for hours. And I wasn't convinced that it was the time to attack yet. JAG. Why did you not think that it was the time to attack? Trumbull. Because our orders were clear that our goal was to engage with primary class creatures on terms of our choosing. The scouts had seen nothing but lesser creatures. The Admiral was convinced that seeing lesser creatures meant that the primaries were there too, under the surface. I wasn't sure. JAG. Did you consider yourself an expert on the behavior of the creatures? Trumbull. Inasmuch as anybody knew anything about them, and none of us knew that much, I at least was a little less in the dark than most other people. I thought we should wait until there was a firm sighting. JAG. I see. Did you make your disagreement known to the Admiral? Trumbull. I tried to. JAG. You tried to? Trumbull. I was in a difficult situation. The last thing any naval officer wants is to be insubordinate. It was the Admiral's force to command. But I was also under orders from Admiral Spruance to advise Admiral Halsey based on my expertise. So, with reservations, I did tell him that I thought that it was too early to start the attack, and that if we waited for a primary sighting and closed ranged while doing so, we'd be in a better position. JAG. Was Admiral Halsey receptive? Trumbull. He was not. JAG. Did you try to press your case? Trumbull. In a limited fashion, I did, being very conscious of the boundaries of insubordination. JAG. How did Admiral Halsey receive your continued efforts? Trumbull. He told me to pipe down and get out of his way or get banned from flag plot, sir. End quote. As Trumbull tried to make his case, Halsey and Carney were already barking orders to start executing the Typhoon battle plan. At Halsey's order, the fleet separated into two elements the air assault group with most of the carriers and a massive screen of cruisers, destroyers, and a couple of older battleships broke off to the west and turned into the wind to launch full deck strikes from eight carriers, a process that could take half an hour. The rest of the fleet, the surface battle group centered on the newer, faster battleships, including Halsey's flagship, the USS Missouri, and their screening vessels with more carriers tagging along for unexpected circumstances, began to maneuver into a multi-lined battle formation before they could surge ahead towards the reported contact. 
In the skies above the carrier group, a strike force of over 200 aircraft assembled under the overall command of Commander Brock Page, CO of Torpedo Squadron 11. The air armada sped towards the contact point where scout bombers continued to orbit above the mass of sea creatures writhing on the surface, savaging the increasingly battered fishing boats that, have, that were serving as bait. At 12.42 p.m. local time, Page made visual contact with the creatures and radioed Halsey's headquarters on the Missouri. Quote, Black Bear to Den, Black Bear to Den, I have visual contact. Repeat visual contact. Request clearance to attack. End quote. Low-grade confusion reigned on the Missouri. The effort to maneuver the fleet into a series of battle lines was taking longer than planned to Halsey's immense frustration. And the dream of a carefully coordinated attack where the surface fleet arrived guns blazing just as the air element finished their attack was in serious jeopardy given the battle fleet's delay. And all the way until Page's strike force's arrival, the scout bomber had continued to report only large numbers of lesser sea creatures with no sign of the high-value, high-threat primaries. But bringing battle whenever, wherever possible was the core of William Halsey's philosophy of warfare. It was arguably the core of his philosophy of life. Giving Page clearance to attack now would mean not having the battle Halsey had planned on, the one he'd sold Forrestal, Nimitz, and Truman on, but it would mean having a battle, taking a shot at harming the enemy when the chance presented itself. And passing up on opportunities of that nature were not part of the makeup of William F. Halsey, no matter how many sputtering noises Rich Trumbull made. Halsey himself reached for a transceiver. This is Papa Bear personally, he growled. Fry the sons of bitches. Attack! Attack! Roger, Wilco, Page responded on the open channel, and then, Wings 1 and 2, let's head down to the deck. Wings 3 and 4, stand by. Page led the first attack elements, consisting of the bulk of the torpedo planes, down to the low altitude they required for their attack runs. More than 65 planes followed him in beautifully formed echelons that displayed the hard professionalism forged in years of conflict with Japan. The plan called for what they called an anvil attack, a maneuver where torpedo planes launched on their target, usually a ship of course, from two different nearly orthogonal angles to make it more difficult for the target to maneuver away. Page's two wings of attack planes veered off and down on their assigned vectors, lining up just above the surface. After getting down to just above the sea level, Page's planes made their attack runs, launching their shotgun blast of torpedoes from two converging directions. No sooner had the wakes begun to show up in the water and the planes to pull up and away from their attack runs, than the dive bombers began their own attack runs, diving from thousands of feet down towards the surface, the better to be able to release their bombs at the exact spot of their choosing. It was a coordinated, graceful ballet of death in the air, a level of coordination that would have seemed impossible to imagine in the early, ragged years of the war. And it was a failure. Whatever success naval forces had encountered in driving small groups of creatures away from the convoys, this phenomenon didn't translate to large massed groups of them. The torpedoes mostly passed through or underneath the massed creatures without exploding. They simply didn't connect with anything because however many creatures there were, there was always a lot of water in between them. A few that did detonate finished the job of destroying the fishing boats. 
The dive bomber's bombs either detonated on hitting the surface or sank into the deep. In neither case was anything other than incidental damage to a few scattered sea creatures accomplished. The pilots had done their jobs with exacting skill. But again, the weapons they were wielding were simply not designed for the task of countering large numbers of soft, widely scattered biological matter. Quote, My whole dive, I watched the planes ahead of me execute perfect drops, end quote. Lieutenant Commander Dale Parsons told the FCDP later, quote, And it couldn't have been more clear the whole way down that they weren't doing a damn thing except sending a lot of iron down to the bottom of the ocean, end quote. Of course, the plan had never been for the planes to do it alone. The theoretical basis for Typhoon called for them to disrupt and scatter the sea creatures so that the surface ships with big guns could finish them off. And after frustrating delays, the surface ships were on their way at high speed. The Missouri was positioned dead center in the third line of ships, the battleship line. Her flag plot, where Halsey had stationed himself to get the broadest possible view of the action, crackled with life. First, radio reports crackled in as the planes positioned themselves for attack and began their runs. In a rare but understandable lapse of flag plot discipline, cheers rang out the first few times that Page's aviators radioed back successful torpedo launches and a few warhead detonations. And then, as the attack pilots and the still-orbiting scouts reported the extremely limited damage done by the airstrike, the mood began to sour. God damn those things! Were they just impossible to kill? Halsey, always sensitive to morale, snapped at the nearby crew members, Quit pulling them goddamn long faces. In 20 minutes, we're going to be unloading most of the 16-inch guns in the world onto these sons of bitches, and there ain't going to be anything left. Don't be a bunch of goddamn quitters. End quote. Trumbull's journal records that a small round of claps and cheers followed with a somewhat restored sense of mission and flag plot. And then disaster struck. The gunnery element of 3rd Fleet was proceeding southwest at 25 knots in four regimented lines, roughly destroyers in front, fast cruisers next, then battleships and heavy cruisers, followed by a rear line of a few cruisers and destroyers, and the carriers Yorktown and Essex included in this chunk of the fleet in case of unforeseen circumstances. Lookouts on the destroyer Martin reported seeing something in the water as the ship sped forward. Martin's skipper, with limited room to maneuver in the battle line, sent a signal to her neighboring ships that she was going to close to investigate, and then sent a general signal to the rest of the fleet that she'd seen something. Grumbling, Halsey ordered the fleet to slow slightly to allow the maneuver. No sooner had the fleet reduced its speed to a lumbering 10 knots then, in the rear line, the sea around the carrier Yorktown erupted with tentacles, both black and pink. Klaxons erupted on the Yorktown and the ships around her. The tentacles, visibly larger than they had been in previous sightings of El Polpo and Black Jack Kraken, first swept Yorktown's deck clear of the planes that were spotted there and the crew that had been servicing them, and then wrapped themselves around the hull as the two creatures, El Pulpo at the bow and Black Jack at the stern, put their immense muscles to work in the process of tearing the ship apart. The steel of the hull began to crumple immediately, whining in a terrible noise that rang out even above the noise of the alarm breaking out among the panicked fleet. 
Ships in line next to Yorktown started swerving to react without waiting for orders from Halsey. The cruisers Augusta and Honolulu collided in the chaos, staving in Augusta's starboard flank. Aboard Missouri, Halsey and Kearney barked orders to try to regain control of the situation. They had managed to stop the forward charge of the front three lines and attempted to start the process of wheeling them around in formation when, with a screech that deafened men on nearby ships, Yorktown's hull finally gave way and the ship broke apart just aft of her superstructure island. El Pulpo and Blackjack Kraken released their sections, which immediately began sinking fast, and the creatures moved their attention to the stricken cruiser Augusta. The chaos escalated in Missouri's flag plot. The snap turn ordered for the fleet was too much too soon for an unsuspecting fleet, and radio reports of near misses and minor collisions came flooding in as the formation deteriorated. Carney continued to shout orders as Halsey stood in front of the plexiglass display where sailors worked feverishly to update the fleet formation and the combat situation with grease pencils. Missouri herself shook as the destroyer Tucker made passing contact with her flank. Halsey looked up and addressed the nearest radioman, quote, Send this out. Crash retreat. All ships. Best speed heading 030. Exception for California, New Jersey, and Iowa, which are to stay back and cover the escape. COs of these three ships are to radio acknowledgement and then engage, end quote. A brief, shocked silence fell on Flagplot, although it was quickly broken by a radioed report from the CEO of the destroyer Young that he had just seen Augusta's rear battery get ripped clean off her deck by Blackjack Kraken. Halsey's orders went out to the fleet. Skippers throughout the fleet saw the general retreat order for what it was and set to work distancing themselves from the two creatures, now finishing up their destruction of the Augusta. Within minutes, the seas around the stricken vessel and her attackers were relatively open, save for some wreckage and floating bodies. The fleet scattered in all directions before, after opening up some space, angling individually to the northeast and pouring on as much as their engine rooms could handle. Except, of course, for the battleships Iowa, California, and New Jersey. These three battle wagons had been abeam in the third line of the formation, next to Halsey's Missouri, and had managed to stay in relatively decent order with each other in the attempted turnaround. As the rest of the ships of the fleet scattered, the three battleships closed on the rapidly disintegrating Augusta and her two assailants. And here the futility of Halsey's order was truly laid bare. The crews of these battleships were the elite, the cream of the fleet, but they were panicked. And their training had been for gunnery engagements with ships at long range, receiving long-distance targeting guidance from lookouts or spotter planes, not for point-blank gunfights. They simply didn't know how to conduct this fight. The best they could do was to aim at the Augusta, the closest thing they had to a target, and hope that their calculated on-the-fly shots from the hip would connect. A 16-inch shell, probably from the Iowa, struck the hulk of the Augusta and exploded, reducing what was left of the ship to rapidly sinking garbage and blowing the two creatures clear. Hope rose briefly on the three battleships that they had at least driven the creatures off and could rejoin the rest of the fleet. And then the sea around New Jersey erupted with tentacles. The other two battleships, desperate, trained their fire at their stricken sister, 
hoping to repeat the near success of the Augusta. But again, the unfamiliar gunnery situation worked against them. Two errant straight-line shots from California struck Iowa's superstructure and exploded, killing over 200 men instantly. A few shots did find their way to New Jersey, whose skipper was desperately trying to maneuver free from his assailants, and blew the top of her superstructure off. The ship shuddered to a stop and a chain of explosions rocked her. The sea creatures released their grip and disappeared under the water as the ship convulsed, weakened by their grips. Continuing to explode, she slid under the sea. Iowa was on fire but still underway, with California cruising next to her when the dreaded pink, but not black this time, tentacles erupted from the water at California's stern. Iowa's gunners knew that a 16-inch shell at this range would destroy California and possibly even engulf their own ship, but they thought that smaller caliber might fall within acceptable margins. So all of Iowa's aft batteries fired off in a shotgun blast of point-blank naval ordnance. Popcorn explosions erupted around the rear of California. Hundreds of men died, killed by explosions or shrapnel, and the hull ruptured into several severe but not disastrous openings. But several bits of tentacle also flew clean, and El Pulpo released its grip and fell back into the depths. The two battleships, damaged but operational, made their best speed toward the mass of blips on their radars that represented the rest of the fleet trying to regroup for its retreat. New Jersey had been lost with all hands. Iowa and California were nearly crippled and would be out of action for months. But their holding action had bought time for Halsey and the rest of the fleet to escape. Rich Trumbull's summary from the Court of Inquiry debriefing is again revealing. Quote, Jag, if you were to describe the outcome of Operation Typhoon, how would you do so? Trumbull, it was a debacle. Jag, in your opinion, was this outcome inevitable? Trumbull, in a way, I think it was. Jag, really? You don't think things could have turned out differently if the Admiral had made different decisions? Trumbull, I don't. If the Admiral had waited and launched the attack later, it's my considered opinion that the only difference is that the fleet would have been mauled a few hundred miles further to the southwest. The problem wasn't Admiral Halsey's decision-making. I mean, I didn't agree with it, but there was no particular set of decisions he could have made that would have worked out better. We didn't understand the nature of our enemy. We didn't have the right understanding. We didn't have the right doctrine. We didn't have the right tools. That's the only thing that matters. End quote. Of course, Trumbull's testimony, like the rest of the Court of Inquiry, took place in a conference room in San Diego after Pearl Harbor was laid to waste. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. I really mean that. Uh, please join me next week as the Third Fleet limps back to the um, safety of Pearl Harbor. Uh, in the meantime, again... Um, if you could share the word of this podcast with one person in your life who likes adventure at sea or sea monsters or history or just having a good time, um, please do so. I would really appreciate it. Thanks and uh, be well. Battle
them bust them crackings. Light up all them battleships and send the seafood packing. Train them guns out, boys, and get out there and bust them crackings. Dee -dee.